Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, episode 52. At the time of this recording, Bitcoins are trading at $254 each, and LTB coins, everybody's favorite coin, is trading at .000422, as in to the moon, US dollars. Mm, mm, mm. Now that's gravy. Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, and thanks for joining me today as I podcast from East Nashville, Tennessee, with my trusty Siberian Husky Maxwell by my side. Say hello, Maxwell. Good boy. I'm just your average Bitcoin enthusiast who happens to be lucky enough to talk with interesting people from all over the world about Bitcoin, digital money, and the future of finance that is now. Please join me each Monday morning right here on the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network as we explore together the past, the present, and the future of money here at the dawn of the age of cryptocurrencies. Welcome back, friends, and hello, new listeners. On today's show, I am honored to be speaking with Dr. Charles Evans, Professor of Finance and Economics at Barry University in beautiful Miami Shores, Florida. Dr. Evans talks to us today about fool's gold, dolphin tanks that replace shark tanks, the Lighthouse Project by Mike Hearn, great project, and how a lot of people may be unknowingly stepping right over sacks of money in their rush to get rich. All right, today on the show, I am very happy to welcome Dr. Charles Evans, Professor of Finance and Economics at Barry University in Miami Shores, Florida. Dr. Evans, welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy. Glad to be here. Oh, hey, thanks. So uh, what is your weather like there in Miami Shores today? Uh, partly cloudy, and right now I'm looking at 78 degrees in Miami. Probably will hit around 80 by the afternoon. So it's finally cool enough for us to open the windows and doors. Oh, man, I'm envious. That sounds <laughs> so much better than Nashville weather. And, you know, I took a look at uh, Google Images earlier at uh, pictures of Barry University, and that is a beautiful university. Uh, yes, it is actually a very nice university. It's uh, been around since 1940, hmm. and they have very good relations with the neighborhood around them, which uh, is an interesting mix because Miami Shores by the water is very wealthy. But as you come inland, you get to Little Haiti and the areas of Miami where Trayvon Martin was from. Hmm. And so it's a very interesting mix there. The student body is also very diverse. So you are a professor of finance and economics. Now, do you teach your students anything about Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in your class? As a matter of fact, I do. We have students from all over the world. I've got Chinese and Japanese students, people from the Middle East, people from Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean, of course. Wow. And after graduation, owing to the uh, rules here in the United States, they have to return home. And so I've incorporated Bitcoin into my economics and finance classes. I am now requiring the students to become acquainted with people in parts of the world where they do not have family ties. So if you're from Latin America, I want you to meet somebody in Africa. Or if you're from the Middle East, I'd like you to meet somebody from outside the Middle East. Hmm. And so I'm putting them together with people overseas just to connect the dots mm -hmm. of the material in class. Because when you're talking about balance of trade and things along those lines, it can be pretty dry. But when you're negotiating with somebody in Ghana about getting some spices or shea butter or something like that sent over, 
it's a very different experience when you have to deal with clearing customs and things along those lines. Hmm. And Bitcoin enables transactions that were literally impossible even five years ago. And so we're seeing a huge amount of interest coming out of, I don't even like calling it the developing world anymore. I refer to it as the emerging middle income countries. Hmm. Because these are not the people of the third world that we grew up thinking of you know when was the last time you heard about a famine right we're talking about people who have 30 dollar htc smartphones and they're on facebook all day right it's a very very different world from what it was like i said even five years ago it's just it's mind-boggling I agree, and I don't know what they're teaching in public schools these days. Hopefully, it's better than what I learned. But we were really kind of shut off from learning about Canada and uh, Mexico here, you know, North America, where we live. Canada was ice and rivers and lakes, and Mexico was pueblos and boroughs and straw hats and little villages, right? We never learned that there were large cities with commerce and public transportation and libraries and symphony halls. We never studied Mexico City at all, one of the oldest cities in the world here in North America. We certainly didn't learn anything about Central America or South America. Right. And then when it came to the rest of the world, you know, Africa, China, as far as the developing countries, we didn't learn anything about those. As far as we knew, there were just huts and there were tribes and people carrying spears and massive areas that were desert or that were jungle and that's really all we learned it's very sad to think that that was my public education when it came to these quote third world or developing countries yeah it might be more appropriate to refer to it as the leapfrogging world because they went from not having phones to having mobile phones and now we're going from not having bank accounts to using virtual currency so the old images just don't apply and if you want to see a brilliant send-up of this, you can go to africafornorway.no. There are some young men from sub-Saharan Africa. I gather they live in Norway, and they're working with some Norwegian students. And they've been making these very biting, satirical videos about poverty porn. So they did one where they have a bunch of African people singing one of those We Are the World type songs, trying to get Africans to send radiators to Norway to help the poor Norwegians because they're freezing to death. <laughs> and then they do another one that's like, who wants to be a millionaire? But it's who wants to be a volunteer. <laughs> and they're just awful. And they're funny as all get out. <laughs> oh, I love that. That is so creative and so uh, timely, right? Mm -hmm. Wow, good stuff. So let me ask you, before we really get into talking about Bitcoin and talking about some other things today, the other professors that you know who teach finance and who teach economics, they're at your university and at other universities. Do you feel like you get any flack from them? Do they look at you as a crazy man? Do you get any flack from the administration at all because you're talking to students about Bitcoin? At my previous university where I was a visiting instructor for several years, the looks that I would get bordered on pity. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Now I take a stack of Why Bitcoin magazines with me and there's a table there in the hallway and every now and then I have to replenish it and I've seen my colleagues walking around with it. So their instinct was to look at me as a madman, but I've got one or two of them who were sitting on the fence. They wanted to like it, but they didn't know enough about it. And then I walk in and I start talking about this stuff with a straight face as if it were for real. And so they're starting to warm up to it. The really interesting thing is the administration at our university is very interested in the stuff that I'm doing with it because, well, for one, I'm able to drop names like Microsoft, United Way. And then we had the news yesterday about the former or a former CEO of Citibank investing in Coinbase. Oh, yeah. 
So the news that's coming out, it's an easier and easier sell, but it really has been a rough go over the past couple of years because there were all these misconceptions and only a very few of us were involved in the money punk movement back in the 1990s. And I would say essentially no academic is even aware of David Chom and eCash and things along those lines. For a lot of people, this is new stuff, but there are those of us who've been doing this for a very long time. And this is just a natural progression that's been going on for about a quarter century. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, I tend to think that the people who have taken to Bitcoin from the very beginning or when they first heard about it, I am one of those people. I do not have a background in finance. I do not have a background in cryptography or in any kind of tech, really. I've been using computers for years and pretty much self-taught, but I think that it has something to do with an individual's personality. Those people who are more curious, naturally curious, seem to me to take to Bitcoin and to take to the studying of Bitcoin very readily. And those who are not curious by nature, I think they've had a very difficult time wrapping their mind around the whole concept of Bitcoin and digital currencies and uh, accepting the fact that this is a financial revolution. (laughs) Um, And I feel sorry for those people in a lot of ways because I think that they've been distracted by so many things that they've really then spent their time trying to poke holes in Bitcoin or trying to disprove it or discredit it in some ways uh, when they really could have spent that time embracing it, uh, learning about it, just diving in and figuring out if there's a place for them in that, or at least accepting how blockchain technology and uh, cryptocurrencies are changing their world. But Charles, I digress because I want to talk about an article that first introduced me to you, the article uh, entitled Fool's Gold Rushes in reference to the gold rush in the 1800s and how that relates to what people are doing these days, rushing into these new platforms, projects, and uh, digital currencies. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, and also, if you'll note the placement of the apostrophe in the title, that was intentional. Yes. So, yes, I've been telling my students now for more than a decade that if you look back at technological history, thinking in terms of Jeffrey Moore's crossing the chasm, that sort of thing, the sort of stuff that Ray Kurzweil likes to write about, it seems that approximately... Once every decade, we have what I refer to as a gold rush, which is a period of time, it's a very brief period of time, when something that was not possible now is possible. And if you wrap your arms around it now and make it your own, you can ride it to potentially great wealth or at least you know have a little fun with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Think back to the 1980s with the breakup of AT&T, it became possible in the United States for the first time ever to start a competitive long-distance phone company. But if you missed that boat, you had to wait for the next one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually less than a decade after that that cellular technology came on the market and you could slap some antennas on top of people's office buildings, call yourself a mobile phone company, and then hope that Macaw or somebody like that would come and buy you out. If you wanted to start a cellular phone company now, it would be prohibitively expensive, and why would you do that? Mm -hmm. Go to the early 1990s, you could have registered one- and two-letter domain names, or, you know, every naughty word that you can think of, .com, (laughs) and then sit on those and keep re-registering them until somebody pays you outrageous sums of money so that you can have them. But you cannot register x.com today. It's, It's gone. 
In fact, you can't even register all the good domain names were taken.com because that one's taken too. Yeah, you know what? I have to interject there, but I don't want to throw you off track. Um, I've been dabbling in domains for years, but then when Bitcoin came along, I got so interested in Bitcoin, I forgot about the domain names. Ah. Right? And what I should have been doing is I should have been buying up Bit domain names. So I really drop <laughs> I really dropped the ball there, but I do have some good ones. You know, if I had the domain name egg.com, I think egg or eggs.com would be worth a lot, but I don't I have the uh, Spanish version. I have huevo.com, which I think is still a good one. I'm still kind of hoping that that can uh, pay my utility bills someday. But <laughs> I digress into domain names, but your point is well taken and please continue on. Yes. So, as I said, I've been telling my students this for quite a while, and then it seemed as though we had been in a dry spell for longer than a decade. And I attribute this to the 9 11 attacks and the passage of the USA Patriot Act. Mm-hmm. I was involved with what we called e-currencies back in the 1990s. And after the passage of the USA Patriot Act, interest in our industry basically fell off the face of the earth because, you know, we were moving money around the internet. Mm -hmm. And that's when I returned to academia to teach. And I was counting the years and I said, well, we're getting into 11, 12, 13 years. Where's the new gold rush? And I wasn't seeing it, and it was starting to bother me. And I used to stand in front of 200 students and tell them the same story that I'm telling you now. And I said, I don't know what the next gold rush is. And as delightful and wonderful as each of you is, I certainly wouldn't tell you if I knew. (laughs) And I start hearing about Bitcoin, and I had the same reaction that a lot of other people had who had been in this field for a very long time, which was, yeah, yeah, we've heard that all before. Because what a lot of people actually, I'm surprised how many people do know this, but a lot of people don't, is that something known as the Byzantine generals problem had been shown logically and mathematically to be insoluble. It was impossible to have a system like Bitcoin. And you can go back and find the articles about this. They're all available online. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can read these things. And they explained with you know great logic and math that it can't be. And the idea of having this distributed, shared transaction history was ridiculous a decade ago because, I mean, good gracious, you're talking about gigabytes of information. I mean, how are you ever going to pull that down from a dial-up modem? Well, the technology progresses. Hard drives become cheaper than water. Mm -hmm. Processor speeds pick up. Bandwidth picks up. We now carry the internet in our pockets and we can watch videos on our telephones. Hmm. The technology catches up and what was very wasteful in the past becomes plausible now. Satoshi Nakamoto comes out with this design, and it worked. Yeah. Whoa. (laughs) That wasn't supposed to happen. (laughs) It had been proven to be impossible. Yep. And so, what was it, 2010, 2011, people start hearing about it. And naturally enough, who picks it up first? The people who are engaged in activities that the mainstream banking system, you know, doesn't like. And, you know, so we had the Silk Road, and eventually we got gambling, and now we've got adult entertainment. And this is how it works. This is how the VCR became popular. You know, people making videos at home and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And now we're starting to move into the more early adopter, I don't know if it's early mainstream yet, but maybe. And simultaneous to this, we have people in the emerging middle income parts of the world, the you know, five, five and a half billion people now have mobile phones. And some very few of them are coming to realize that they can buy stuff from here and from China and they can sell stuff to us and they can get paid in these numbers that appear on their telephones 
and somebody somewhere is willing to give them either euros, dollars, or local currency, and you can almost hear the wheels spinning <laughs> when you're on Facebook chatting with these people, and it's just starting to go really crazy mm -hmm. to the point where some of us down here in Miami who have been involved in the Bitcoin community, we got together and we started an organization called the Conscious Entrepreneurship Foundation. Hmm. And uh, we recently received our um, nonprofit designation from the Internal Revenue Service a couple months ago. I've been telling people ever since that if you want to get a nonprofit organization that is focused on Bitcoin approved, uh, don't put Bitcoin in the name. Well, that's good advice. Or in the bylaws. Mm -hmm. And so we got approved pretty quickly. And we hold monthly what I call dolphin tanks. This is where people get together, they throw business ideas out, and they're supposed to help each other move the ideas forward. So rather than send people home crying, we're creating a more, you know, sort of supportive environment. I like to tell people that it's like a shark tank, but with less blood in the water. <laughs> and we're getting some interest from some really unexpected corners here. Uh, we get the Bitcoin people showing up for these things, but then we'll get people like freight forwarders or we'll get people who are web developers. We just recently had somebody who's doing some interesting environmental stuff showed up and wanted to see what we were doing. Oh, wow. And the administration at my university is very happy with this because they like this whole do-gooder capitalism thing. And so uh, we're looking at some projects there and then I'm having my students work with my contacts overseas and just see where it goes. You know, I love the idea of the dolphin tank. It's so much more friendly. And I love your idea of the Conscious Entrepreneurship Foundation, because we all know that in the future, 20 years from now, not everybody who has a business that's using Bitcoin technology is going to have the word bit <laughs> in it, right? This is the right. this is the early stages where people just feel compelled. We've got to have the word bit or Bitcoin in the right. name somewhere, which I've found from the very beginning to be silly. So I love the fact that you picked a name that sounds much more <laughs> intelligent, you know, <laughs> and much less like some sort of a, a goofy game or a click or a clan or something. But also, I love the fact that you have other people outside of the Bitcoin sphere who are starting to be interested in that your administration likes the fact that you're reaching out in that way. Let me ask you, when it comes to your students, do you find that the wheels turn more readily for students who are from other countries than they do for your American students? It seems to be that way, yes, in large measure, because these people deal all the time with the difficulties of moving money around. Uh, for example, when they want to pay tuition from some countries, the banking systems in a lot of countries around the world are just hopelessly broken. And Western Union is prohibitively expensive. And many places have currency controls. You have to ask permission before you can send money out. And I'm also very surprised by how many of my non-US students already know about Bitcoin. I was talking about this uh, last semester, and one young man from the Dominican Republic pipes in. He just can't sit still any longer. He raises his hand, and he starts telling us about how his uncle uses Bitcoin to get around the currency controls there and, and how people like to keep Bitcoin so that the people at the bank don't know that they have money. Because in a lot of places around the world, if you have a large balance in the bank, you're at extremely high risk of being kidnapped hmm. because somebody at the bank will contact the local gang to let them know that you're a juicy target and the person at the bank gets you know a little finder's fee for that and this is a big problem in a lot of parts of the world wow 
that's heavy stuff right there, man. But that, that makes sense. That's human nature, right? Mm-hmm. Wow. And then you're seeing the stories. You can find them on, on the internet now. People in Russia are looking at Bitcoin. It's not the majority of Russians, but there are some Russians who are looking at Bitcoin as one way of getting their money out of the country if they can. And there's a really big Bitcoin community in Buenos Aires, in Argentina. Mm-hmm. And what with all the mess that's going on down there, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens because they've got this massive scandal at the moment. I have not been following this. Can you tell us about the scandal there in Argentina? Oh, well, this is, um, uh, there was a, an act of terrorism down there some years ago, and somebody blew up a synagogue, and it was believed that it was Iranian terrorists. And so somebody within the Argentine government had information on this, and he was about to testify. He was found dead uh, yesterday, I think. And Mm. apparently there's a Venezuela connection there as well. And so now people down in uh, Argentina and, and potentially even Venezuela, they're wondering what on earth is going on. And so given that these are two countries that have strict currency controls, but people have access to the internet, it's going to be very, very interesting to see where all this goes. And there's no predicting it. It's one of those things where I just keep checking the news. Wow. No, the world's going... Actually, the world is a lot safer than it was in previous decades, but the fact is that we get to see it almost in real time, and it seems like the world's insane. Yeah, it does. There's just so much information that keeps flooding toward us from different sources. I think what bothers me more than anything is that I know for a fact that there are a certain percentage of these terrorist attacks or tragedies that happen that are actually false flags. In other words, it's perpetrated by this group, but... It's made to look like it's perpetrated by this group, or it's made to look like we're not sure which group did that. But the problem is there's no way to know which ones are false flags and which ones are literally what they tell us they are. Because it's very difficult these days to trust a news source considering the fact that, one, they're a private corporation whose primary objective is profit. And two, because we know that they can be captured, we know that they can be bought. Right, exactly. I mean... We still don't know for certain who shot the plane down over Ukraine. You know, each side points to the other one. So which one was it? Mm -hmm. There's a Wikipedia article on false flag attacks, and you can just read some of these through history. And then there are the other things that aren't quite false flags, but were things that were misunderstood at the time. The story was told one way, and then it turns out 20 years later, somebody finally gets a Freedom of Information Act uh, application, you know, allowed and next thing you know you find out it wasn't the way that people were told back then it would be Mm. very surprising if that all had stopped yeah so i don't have a line on any particular conspiracy theories i'm just looking at the general pattern it would just be very odd if this prevarication just sort of spontaneously stopped as of 2005 or something so i expect it's still going on One thing that disturbs me is the whole way that language is being morphed or being twisted such that you can have a word like conspiracy. Well, we know for a fact that you can go back to any time in history, take the railroad barons conspiring to monopolize the railroads. That's an historical fact. It was actually a conspiracy of businessmen who got together and conspired to create a monopolization, right? That's just a fact. But the very word conspiracy these days has been taken and twisted by the media such that if you say the word conspiracy it means 
UFOs, Bigfoot, <laughs> Loch Ness Monster, all of these things where you can no longer say that may be a conspiracy because your average American who's turning into a dum-dum, they equate the word conspiracy with something that's false. So it's always funny to me how words can be co-opted. But Dr. Evans, I digress. <laughs> Once again, I would definitely like to talk to you about Mike Hearn's big project, his Lighthouse Project. I think that right. you have some interest in that and you have some illumination <laughs> for our listeners about the Lighthouse Project and uh, how that interests you. Yes, it's potentially very interesting for us because, again, I'm working with people all around the world. And these are people who have ideas. One of them wants to buy some land that he and some of the people he knows will grow cash crops on. Apparently, there's a movement at the moment where churches are buying land and then letting people farm the land in Ghana and then splitting the proceeds from the sale of the crops, hmm. so sharecropping. Yeah. And so what he wants to do is raise money to buy some few acres and then grow either plantains or cassava or something like that. I think he's talking about maybe even raising pigs for, uh, for pork, apologies to the vegans, <laughs> and uh, selling it there locally and getting things jump-started. Well, if you put that on Kickstarter or Indiegogo, you still have to manage to get paid somehow, and it's relatively difficult to get the dollars out of Kickstarter into a lot of places around the world. PayPal doesn't work everywhere. It's just not as easy as all that where what we're finding is when people are coming to the Bitcoin user base, you think of Sean's outpost in the panhandle of Florida. Mm -hmm. Jason King comes out and says, yeah, I've got this homeless shelter. We're able to give people some very few meals per week. We're thinking about embracing Bitcoin. What do you say? Next thing we know, we're finding out that he's getting donations from China. So hmm. there's this camaraderie within the Bitcoin user base that you don't see even among old-school libertarians. Uh, I started out my career in the early 1990s working with an organization. It was originally in Fairfax, Virginia, now they're in Washington, D.C., called Atlas Economic Research Foundation. They're kind of a matchmaking organization where if you want to start the free market foundation of Lithuania, you'll eventually learn about Atlas. You contact Atlas, they'll put you together with potential funders, and off you go. And that matchmaking activity is seen as a good thing, mm -hmm. and so people fund it. I built their first website, as a matter of fact. Oh, wow. And so I used to travel to mainly the Baltic region in Northern Europe. And libertarians get along fine across borders and stuff like that, but you don't see the kind of mutual aid that I'm seeing with Ala Itirling in Botswana, the Bitcoin lady that you might have heard of. Uh -huh. uh, she's one of the people working with us. I've got another young lady in Uganda and then I've got my crew of guys over in Ghana, and we're starting to make some contacts in Nigeria. And these people are drawn together by Bitcoin across an unbearable chasm of ethnic differences and linguistic differences. These are people who are more different than I am from somebody in Latin America, and yet they feel a common bond. And they're, they're like helping each other promote their projects and things like this. And it's just one of those things where it's like, wow, you know, people are being drawn together by money. <laughs> All right. <laughs> wow. What a, what a world. <laughs> that is really neat. Mm -hmm. So do you mind if I read something here? It's a description of how Lighthouse works. 
Yes, of course. Okay, it's fairly short, but it says, Lighthouse combines two functions in one. Firstly, it gives a lightweight encryptable HD wallet. It uses simplified payment verification, so even though it synchronizes directly with the blockchain, performance is as good as a web wallet. In fact, it uses the same code that powers the most popular Android smartphone wallet. Secondly, it provides a way to create projects, pledge money to projects using coins that were sent to the app, and revoke pledges you made if you want your money back before the contract reaches its goal amount. Because the contract takes place entirely on the blockchain, you don't need much trust in the project owner to manage the partially raised funds. Pledges can't be claimed individually. They only become recognized as valid by the Bitcoin network when enough are combined together to reach the goal. That's pretty exciting stuff. Yes, it is. So imagine you have something like AfriWorks. That's A-F-R-I-W-O-R-K-S. This is a collective of craftsmen in Ghana. Okay. They take gourds, they cut sections of it out, they carve on it, they make these really pretty designs. They would like to start exporting their products. So they could start a Kickstarter type of a campaign to put together either a carton Probably not a container. That would be a little bit much. But a large collection of stuff that they could ship in one shipment to somebody who is in a place where distribution would be very inexpensive. Uh, South Florida is a place that we have something like 1,500 logistics companies in the Miami area alone. Maybe Singapore has the same sort of distribution node that we have down here. Wow. So now imagine that these folks are able to use Lighthouse promote the fact that they're using Bitcoin, which is still going to get you some buzz these days. And if they make their goal, then they can run the project. And if they don't make the goal, then everybody gets their money back. You say, well, yeah, you can use Kickstarter for that. Yes, but how do they get their dollars out of Kickstarter? Mm -hmm. It's not as easy as that. Now, Ghana's not so bad, but there are parts of the world that are. And my young man who wants to buy a piece of land, he can do the same thing. He could start a lighthouse campaign promote the fact that he's in Africa. Uh, he could play with the myth of the African cheetah. If you go to Forbes and Fortune magazine, you'll see that they're referring to this young generation Africa's cheetahs. Hmm. And the old school politicians, they're calling hippos. <laughs> and this is sort of the myth that they've embraced. And so they can play on that. And anybody who is reading Fortune, Forbes magazine, and saying, wow, looks like you know maybe finally Africa might be the new Asia, these young men can play on that as well. And by combining Bitcoin and this growing interest in sub-Saharan Africa, they could get paid. And then the beauty of it is they get the Bitcoins like within minutes. And this is really heady stuff. Oh, it's great. And so we're just waiting to see where it goes. I mean, Lighthouse was, the beta was released, what, just a few days ago. Right. So, you know, give me 10 minutes and <laughs> let's see where <laughs> this thing ends up. Charles, this is great stuff, really. Oh, this is incredible. I mean, you know, you and I were originally planning on talking last week. And between the time when we were originally going to talk and now, we had the Lighthouse announcement. We had that $75 million investment in Coinbase was announced. And it's incredible how fast things develop within the Bitcoin space. Back in the 1990s, we used to say that internet time is seven times as fast 
as clock time, <laughs> you know, playing on the idea of dog years. Yep. <laughs> and, and I've been telling people now for the past about three years that Bitcoin time is seven times as fast as internet time. <laughs> and it really does seem to be that kind of fast. We go from, oh my God, the government wants to shut us down to, well, the Wall Streeters are trying to shut us down to, oh, look at that, the former head of the SEC is now working as a consultant for two Bitcoin companies, <laughs> former chairman of City Group, and a former chairman of Thomson Reuters has now plunked personal money into this stuff. The New York Stock Exchange is investing in Coinbase, and it's just like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's bizarre. It is bizarre, really. It's truly bizarre. I don't know what to make of it half the time, and you know, I do have fears. I fear that one day Bitcoin will end up being something that enslaves <laughs> enslaves all people. You'll have to have a Bitcoin wallet implanted in you or something, and that you won't have access to anything else to trade with, no other dollars or no other means of currency. You'll just be bound to the Bitcoin chip that's implanted in your arm or whatever, and if you take it out, you'll be arrested. Those kinds of of, uh, dystopian future scenarios come through my mind because I've read so much sci-fi over the years. But, you know, you never know, right? Well, I tend to be a bit more optimistic about these things. I've been close to government and I've seen that it's really a squabbling mass of competing factions. I don't even know if those people could agree on where to have lunch, <laughs> much less, you know, steer the world you know, through their <laughs> Illuminati front or whatever. But in general, though, if you think about it, the treatment of women these days throughout much of the world is much better than it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, people are tending to be more tolerant. I mean, for, for crying out loud, here in the state of Florida, which is notoriously conservative outside of South Florida where I live, we have gay marriage now. When I was a teenager, who would have believed that one? So I don't know where this is going to go. Whenever people ask me, like, you know, what do you think the Bitcoin price is going to be six months from now or a year from now? I tell people, I don't even know what I'm having for lunch tomorrow. <laughs> but what I can tell you is that if you look at some of the work of Ray Kurzweil, it would be surprising if the trends that have been in play for the past half century were to just suddenly stop. So right. it seems that I'm expecting that my telephone five years from now, you know, when I buy a new one five years from now or whatever, will be vastly more intelligent than the telephone that I have now. I was just playing around with uh, computer configurations on the System76 website. They preload computers with Ubuntu. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was doing the configuration there. And the amount of hard drive that you can pack into a laptop is the stuff of science fiction. I mean, it's just, it's measured in terabytes now. And it just goes on and on and on. I know that it may sound absurd, but I have for you a magic word. And today's magic word is lighthouse. L-I-G-H-T-H-O-U-S-E. Lighthouse, as in the sentence, thank you, Mike Hearn, for bringing us lighthouse. I think that what's going to wind up happening is that there will be good and bad. So we've got the surveillance state uh, story just came out not too long ago about how there's a company that sells these radar units that police all around the United States are using to look at people through walls. But then at the same time, you have the move to have police wear cameras on their uniforms. So... Privacy is dead, but it cuts both ways. I agree. You know, as far as the cameras go, I 
hope that we see a future where everybody has their own little inexpensive $10, $20 camera on their car, and that information is either sent wirelessly to the nearest whatever and back to their computer, or it's sent to a microcomputer that they have within their car themselves. I like the idea that if some people can videotape, then everybody can videotape, and we can all see what's going on at all times, and so we can keep an even playing field and keep everyone honest. There was an article published in Wired magazine in 1996 by a gentleman by the name of David Brin, B-R-I-N. He then later turned that into a, or expanded that into a book called The Transparent Society, where he was basically describing a world in which you have ubiquitous surveillance. But, I mean, after the novelty of watching people sleep wears off, (laughs) nobody cares anymore. Right. (laughs) So, So, yeah, okay, people are watching you, and it's like, hey, look at me, I'm watching people. Yay. (laughs) Right. What else am I going to do now? So we get used to things. And if you think about it, I mean, we tell children, don't put pictures on the internet that would be embarrassing if you went to a job interview. Right. And I'm, I'm expecting a decade from now, it's going to be one of those things where like yawn, teenagers misbehaving. You're not allowed in the United States. I expect this is true in much of Western Europe as well. You're not allowed to ask somebody how old he or she is. <laughs> right. You're not allowed to inquire into the gender on the job application. Right. Uh, race, ethnicity, those are things that you're not allowed to talk about. 50 years ago, those were routine questions at job interviews. That's right. So I, I could see 10, 20 years from now that it would be a violation of somebody's privacy if you were to go see if there were some embarrassing photographs from somebody's teenage years during a job interview. We just get used to stuff. Yeah, I agree. Uh, homosexuality. Good gracious. I remember there was an episode of the TV show, The Monkees, that I watched when I was a kid, and they openly made fun of homosexuals. Wow. And you roll the clock ahead today, and you, there would be riots. Yep. So the attitudes can change very quickly. And I get the feeling that we're entering what I like to refer to sort of tongue-in-cheek as the age of decadence, where people will behave more or less naturally in a way that would have been completely scandalous for our parents and grandparents. And it'll be one of those so what sorts of things. Yeah, I agree. The age of decadence that has good connotations and bad connotations. Sure. I guess. You know, I think we're also in an era where people are so easily entertained. They're so easily led in the direction of what the new technology says is the coolest thing du jour, right? You've got to try this. You've got to try that. And so people are pulled in so many different directions, but really all along the way, so distracted from maybe they're a creative person and they're an artist or they're a musician or whatever, but they may spend so much time with their devices or their computer. They may be addicted to their phone that they spend that much less time perfecting their art or working on writing or working on creating something that is meaningful to them. And that makes me sad in a certain way. In other words, entertainment in particular can grab people and can drag them away from what they otherwise maybe would have been doing you know i see the kids playing it's the big thing now you know my child has mastered minecraft you ought to see him go you know so it's all on this little thing the size of a slice of bread and that's the world that he's living in or it's on a tablet and i'm thinking man you know what when i was eight years old my dad would go to work i snuck down in the basement and i found a way with a paper clip i could turn on his radio arm saw i'm eight years old right now that's pretty dangerous a radio arm saw can cut your finger off or cut your hand but i had such a respect and a of this thing because I'd seen my dad use it. I was cutting wood when I was eight years old. I was building stuff. I didn't have any electronic things. So I became proficient at building things and making things with my hands. And I'm still really good at that. And I think that's a future that makes me sad to see go away. But 
I digress. Let's move from that concept into what I'd like to talk about, the dumb, dumb Americans. You have, even in the Bitcoin world, where I would say people are of above average intelligence, generally speaking, and then you write this article about the fools' gold rushes. Now, the fools, right? Who are the fools that you're referring to when you wrote this article? Yeah, this is potentially going to be me stepping on some people's tails. And, uh, you know, what can I say? I've, I've been at this now for a quarter century, if you want to look at the free market activities I've been involved in. I've also been involved with virtual currencies now for more than 15 years. Hmm. I've seen a lot of promises made, and I've seen what happened afterwards. I've seen people who believe that the rules do not apply to them, and I've seen how that went south. And what I'm seeing now is things that look like repeats of history. And rather than name names, because I don't necessarily want to single out one or two people or one or two projects, because that implies that somehow they're worse than the others. And that's not where I'm going with this. I'm looking at this from more of a general perspective. But when you have a new innovation, this thing is brand new. And people will get excited by it because they believe that it has the potential to alter the landscape or to even unseat some incumbents. And we've seen this with Bitcoin. We're going to take down uh, the banking system. We're going to put Western Union out of its misery. Uh, and then you have some people who go a little overboard. We're going to take down the nation state with this stuff. <laughs> right. But no, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Run with it. As long as you're not running with scissors, I don't mind. Yeah. And um, so off you go. And people are playing with Bitcoin and exploring the things that you can do with Bitcoin. We haven't yet seen the full fruition of Bitcoin. It hasn't completed its innovation cycle. And yet you have these other people running in and they seem to be motivated by frustration at having missed the gold rush period of, of Bitcoin. You know, getting in when, when you could buy two pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoins. Right. Wouldn't it be nice to be the person who would receive those 10,000 <laughs> Bitcoins right now? And so, oh dear, I'm really frustrated and irritated by this. So I'm going to pretend that Bitcoin is this moribund status quo institution like the Bank of England, and I'm, I'm going to take it on. Bitcoin hasn't even crossed the chasm yet. Right. So it's a little early for us to be seeing Bitcoin killers. <laughs> and so every now and then, and, and if you go back, and again, it's, it's so tempting to name names by way of example, but I, I, I don't want to single any particular project out. You go back a couple years, you look at Coindesk, and what were we talking about? It was the thing that was going to radically change even sliced bread. Where is it now? Nobody talks about it. And then you had the next one a little while later, and it was going to also be some sort of a Bitcoin killer, and it's gone. <laughs> and so now we have some where you got these projects and, and these are going to be like the next big thing, even though the current next big thing hasn't gone through its entire cycle yet. And I sincerely doubt that they're going to fulfill the hype around them. I mean, when somebody tells you this will be X, mm -hmm. you can't know that. You cannot know if the thing that you're creating will be successful, because if it were that easy, we would all be rich. Exactly. And, you know, for someone like me sitting on the sidelines who does not have a tech background, you mm -hmm. know, I can read or start reading some of these white papers for these new projects, you know, and before long, I'm lost when it starts to get into some kind of writing of code. I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking about, right? But 
What I can do is I can take a little bit of Bitcoin and I can buy, you know, a thousand or ten thousand of these new things. If it seems to have some some technical merit and there seem to be some intelligent people gathered around it, um, I can invest in that. You know, let's say I'm investing a couple of hundred dollars. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, if five years down the road that comes to nothing, I've lost a couple hundred dollars, not the end of the world. But, you know, I like to think, yeah, but if that takes off and, you know, the price quadruples, woohoo, I've quadrupled my money and I can cash out. So, you know, I look at it from an investor's standpoint, but uh, I agree with what you're saying. I thought it was funny when you said that, you know, they're looking at Bitcoin now as if it's something that could be or should be toppled, like the Bank of England, this old musty thing, and it's only existed since 2009, and it's solved a major technological and mathematical problem that they thought would never be solved. Right. So it is kind of funny. And the other thing that I point out in the piece in Cointelegraph is also look at the amount of effort that you're going to expend. It takes a great amount of effort to conceptualize some radical new innovation. I mean, if you look at what Satoshi Nakamoto pulled off with Bitcoin, that was a pretty big deal. Oh, yeah. And for the individual or for the team that is Satoshi Nakamoto, this is his or her or their thing. And and I don't begrudge them any of that at all. In fact, it's absolutely brilliant. But I have to choose now between spending my days conceptualizing something that's going to be even bigger and more innovative and potentially more shocking than Bitcoin. And I have to work out all the details of that, and then I'm going to have to code it up. Then I'm going to have to promote it, and then I'm going to have to get other people to use it. And somewhere in there, I also probably would like to get paid. <laughs> or, or I can just do something really boring and stodgy. I can take my Bitcoins, and I can contact my guys in Africa, and I can ask them to send me some hot sauce. I can mark it up 10 times, slap a fair trade label on it, and sell it to some hipster. Yeah. And then do that again. Yeah. And there's five and a half billion potential customers or business partners. You know, you can buy tea from India and then sell it to people. Or you could buy things here in the United States at the U.S. price, receive bitcoins from people in the rest of the world, and send them stuff. I mean, it, we call it virtual currency, right? Yeah. Well, what do you use currency for? <laughs> for <laughs> buying and selling stuff. <laughs> right. And the other is, if, if we are going to hold it, that's good. That's fine. You know, buy some Bitcoins, hold on to them because you anticipate that the system will be valuable. And I, I do believe that the system will be very valuable over time, but it will be valuable as people actually use this stuff in places that are not well served by the current infrastructure. Mm-hmm. I don't need Starbucks to accept Bitcoin not least of which because Starbucks tastes like licking an ashtray. <laughs> but but I, I'm from Miami. We're rather particular about our coffee. Hey, I'm the same. I'm a coffee snob. I don't drink coffee anymore. I drink tea, but I'm the same. Who wants to drink something that is made by some smiling face Mickey Mouse-like kid, not knowing where those actual coffee grounds have been? Maybe the beans were ground last week, but how long have the beans been sitting in the warehouse, and where was the warehouse, right? <laughs> Well, there's that. And five years from now, it's going to be a robot making the coffee for you anyway. But um, but my point is that you've got people in Latin America, you have people in India, you've got people out in Eastern Asia. I mean, Burma, Myanmar is now beginning to open up. You've got people there who are just now starting to kind of reach out and feel the world. There's this massive, massive commercial opportunity out there. And yet what I'm seeing is people developing apps. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I teach in the school of business, so obviously I'm going to look at it from this 
particular perspective. But then again, the other side that I'm complaining about, you know, they come from the College of Engineering and they're looking at this as like, oh, let's build more cool tools. I'm thinking, okay, that's great. Build cool tools, but let's do stuff with those tools. And so I'm on a tear to recruit as many people as possible in this next phase to start commercial ventures, even if it's just a hobby mm -hmm. that pays for itself, but actually use the Bitcoin in places where it doesn't work. If I want to buy something at my local grocery store, I whip out a credit card or a debit card and I buy stuff. Yeah. If I want to buy a container filled with green coffee beans from a small scale grower in Guatemala, now we're talking. Mm -hmm. Now I can use Bitcoin for this and I can send it to this person. As long as we both have access to somebody's Wi-Fi, we can talk on Skype for free. Hmm. We can record the conversation so it would serve as kind of a, you know, an audio contract. And I can hear the little kachink on the other person's phone when, you know, the first confirmation comes in hmm. and then hope that the coffee shows up. And now that people are doing multi-sig, uh, we can even escrow the stuff. I mean, the gentleman who started Brocker was uh, based here in Miami for quite a while before he left to go do Brocker. In any event, that service is, I love it. It's not necessarily the audience that they're aiming at, but what they've done is they've set themselves up as basically arbitrator. Yeah. So they're not holding on to anybody's value. They're just standing by as an arbitrator should they be needed, which is a brilliant business model. So when you combine all these services and you look at literally five to five and a half billion people worldwide. It's staggering, the opportunity. And mm -hmm. yet what we have is young men coming in and saying, follow me, follow me, I have the next Bitcoin killer. And it's frustrating because there's so much opportunity in the world. And yet people are fixated on something that is, I guess on a good day, some of these things are solutions in search of a problem. But I'm wondering how much of this is just just empty vapor for the sake of, oh, look at me, I can do something cool. By the way, you know anybody who's actually engaged in that activity, knock yourself out. As long as you're not hurting anybody, I don't really mind what you're doing, yeah. but don't ask me to fall for the hype. And I find it just a little bit irritating that every time somebody comes out with some sort of hype-filled white paper, uh, <laughs> everybody gets all excited by it. And I don't see nearly as much spontaneous using of the system that's just sort of sitting there it's like stepping over sacks of money i just find it odd yeah i think that your message is so powerful what you're talking about i think that a lot of people that will go with the next big thing or what they hope is the next big thing i, I really think a lot of people are hoping it is because of the potential for profit and i'm talking about not people that are directly involved in the project but people who are investing maybe you buy a little bit of ethereum or a little bit of ripple or a little bit of covered coin or a little bit of master coin or something like that and you hope that you know maybe you missed the bitcoin train you hope that this is the next big train because you know maybe you're sitting on ten thousand master coins and you're really hoping that it ends up being you know something that allows you to buy a house or to retire and so i think that that is really the impetus for a lot of people maybe even mm -hmm. the majority of people i hesitate to call it greed it's more opportunity they're seeing an opportunity but i think just like what you're saying and putting their energy into that putting their brain power into that or just their time sitting at the computer and i've been guilty of it myself they're missing out on what you're talking about as some of these huge opportunities really to use a business model that is tried and true since the beginning of time. And that is that you have one guy over here who wants something and you've got one guy over here who has it. 
right? And all you've got to do, like Brocker, is stand in the middle and say, hey, I can help you and you get together, <laughs> right? Right. There's no older business model than that, really. Precisely. It's the middleman, right? So that yeah. whole idea of being able to use Bitcoin right now without doing anything else, just act as the middleman in some situations, I think that's the best business plan there could possibly be. But, you know, it actually takes a lot more work than just sitting at your computer and having some of these alt currencies there on Cripsy or Poloniex. It's a lot easier to just sit there and drink your coffee and goof around with these things and talk on the forums, be in the troll box talking about how this price is going to go up or down, what the whales are doing, what the sharks are doing, how we all hate being minnows, but we're stuck being minnows. The trading thing is really kind of out of control, but I do think that is a lot of what is motivating a lot of the people out there right now. And we saw this in the late 1990s. Uh, people were quitting their day jobs to go day trade, and they were all proud because they had you know, made so much money by flipping dot-com shares and things along those lines. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that all they were doing was just writing the bubble up. We didn't hear a lot about how they had succeeded in with their short positions, you know, during the crash in April of 2000. They kind of went silent and went away. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had some instances. My wife is the principal of Bitcountant, which is a uh, small accounting practice that focuses on Bitcoin startups. Hmm. And there have been a few cases where somebody had been trading actively and wanted, you know, we had to calculate the uh, the capital gains on this for this person. And um, because I do this for a living, I would compare this person's returns with buy and hold. And uh, there was one in particular who had netted something like about $40,000 in gains by day trading Bitcoin. Hmm. And you know, that sounded pretty cool until I pointed out that if he just bought the Bitcoins and sat on them, he would have had about $200,000. Um, <laughs> oh, had to man. be the bearer of bad news on that. Yeah, you, you, see, the thing is, before you get excited about your trading strategy, you need to compare it to some sort of a baseline. And if day trading and if flipping uh, altcoins and stuff like that, again, if it were that easy, we would all be rich. And Absolutely. And that's the thing that I'm looking at. You know, people come out and they'll draw lines on graphs and they'll tell you about their head and shoulders and their their whatevers and all the other stuff that goes along with that. I teach finance for a living. Yeah. And I just shake my head in pity. I've also learned to keep my mouth shut because <laughs> a lot of the people who are out there hyping their trading models and stuff like that really are up to no good. And what better way to mask the fact that you're a scammer and a liar than to have a bunch of jargon, uh, let's go ahead and use some Greek letters, let's have some equations, and then some really fancy looking graph, so that you can kind of ooh and ah everybody, like a character from The Simpsons. Mm -hmm. And I'm just not in the business of exposing people like that, because I, I just don't need the abuse, but I still watch people who are promoting uh, different altcoin type stuff, and, and some of the other stuff that is being touted out there. And it's like watching your neighbor's children play with a Frisbee on the shoulder of a busy highway. Mm. And you're just like, ah, <laughs> you know, but there's nothing you can do. How would you advise your students or how would you advise the listeners listening to the show today? Because certainly there are going to be startups, projects, and platforms that are built that have merit, right? And that will bring profit to people and that will bring utility and help people. How do you advise people to discern how can a young person discern between you know this fly-by-night company or this fly-by-night idea and something that is legitimate i mean i use as an example ripple i do know right now that people all over the world are actually using ripple and it is 
offering great utility for them. And it's a very different model than Bitcoin. It is actually viable and it is actually something that people are using to transfer value between commodities and between currencies. So it would be hard for me to say that Ripple is no good. How do you get somebody, a young person, to be able to tell the difference between something that is actually offering utility or has the potential for utility and something that is blatantly, obviously a scam? Yeah, these things go along some sort of a spectrum here. And my advice is a bit more conservative maybe than other people's. So there's going to be some legitimate opportunities there in the middle that you might miss if you heed my advice. (laughs) So if you follow my advice, there are going to be some opportunities that you're going to miss. You're also going to miss some scams. And that middle category, I just have to just kind of like look at and just say, I'm sorry, uh, there was some good stuff in there and I missed it. But my general rule is, if a 12-year-old child cannot draw a picture of it with a crayon, don't invest in it. Hmm. So if you talk about, I'm buying hot sauce from somebody in Ghana, a 12-year-old child can draw a picture of that with a crayon. If you come in with, you know, some of this other fancy stuff that we hear about, and you look at that and you go, uh, (laughs) then I have a tendency to stay away from it. And it's not to say that the person who is promoting it is up to no good. It's just that they're only 24 hours in a day, there are seven days in a week, and there are only so many years in a human lifetime. And my time is spent better on something else than trying to understand something that is inexplicable to me if my goal here is commercial gain. Mm-hmm. Because like I said, there, there are a lot of commercial opportunities out there that people are missing, and it is as though they were stepping over sacks of cash. Yeah. But like I said, look, if your thing is day trading, knock yourself out. I, I, I'm hoping that you're not liquidating your 401k so that you can do that. But like I said, it's like watching the neighbor's kids play with a Frisbee on the shoulder of a busy highway. <laughs> there's, there's nothing I can do except cringe. You know, a, a good quote from Mike Hearn, who is developing Lighthouse. He says, what I'd like to see by unbundling these things is a competitive market of communities and community builders where people are building these project gallery sites. And then he said, people can compete on building really awesome sites. I think that's right in line with what you're talking about. Yes, that's something that I understand and makes sense to me. We're not going to have this one homogeneous mick culture of of (laughs) seven or 10 billion human beings. No, there's going to be different communities and they will be oriented on different sorts of things, which is absolutely brilliant. I mean, if you stop and think about it before the days of the internet, so go back to the prehistory before 1992 or so picture something that young people today might have a hard time kind of grappling with, but here you are, you're living in a small town and you're not like the other kids. You know, maybe maybe you're a homosexual who likes to collect butterflies or something like that. And you're an outcast and, and, and people call you horrible names and maybe they're even physically abusive. Well, now in the days of the internet, it turns out that you're not a freak. You're part of a diaspora. And, you know, there are millions or maybe not millions, maybe thousands or whatever. I don't know. There's a whole bunch of people like you. Mm-hmm. And you can get together into a community and feel a common bond. And so, yeah, what you do then is look for commercial opportunities to build businesses or, or you know, freelance gigs or whatever around 
this thing that you feel this common bond with. Like, for example, I know a lady, absolutely dear to your lady who lives in Texas, who sews dresses for pugs, <laughs> little dog, little dogs with pushed in faces. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it turns out there's this subculture of people who, who like pugs and they like to dress them up, you know, like bride and groom and that kind of stuff. And they'll put <laughs> them up there on little websites. And she specializes in steampunk. So she'll do like little steampunk jackets with, you know, epaulets and things. And, and it's just like, you look at something like that, you say, wow, number one, there's no such thing as a bad business idea. Right. And, you know, this is her thing. And so what Hearn is talking about is taking this the next step and not just putting silly photographs on websites, but actually like having some commercial activity associated with this mm -hmm. and funding campaigns. Hearn's stuff, the other thing that's brilliant about this is it can also be used for charitable work. Nice. So, you know, if you want to have a clothing drive or something like that, mm -hmm. you, can, you can use this stuff. And it becomes easy for people to contribute from around the world, whereas if you start a Kickstarter campaign, you're limited to the people who are in the areas where they can get money into Kickstarter. Right. Now, for you and me, that's dog simple because we have credit cards and we're in the United States. United States has 4% of the world's population, but it generates about 25% of the world's GDP. Mm -hmm. So we've got, we have money running hot and cold in this place. But how does somebody in Burundi contribute to a Kickstarter campaign? Whereas with Lighthouse, Mike has just opened this up to the world. And it can be used for charitable stuff. It could be used for scientific research. It can be it, it can be used for anything where you need to pool large um, large numbers of small contributions. And we're only just now grappling with this because we don't know what's going to happen with a system that opens up these uh, crowdfunding opportunities to people scattered literally across the globe. And I, I don't know where it's going, but that is something that. I think has the potential to do great things. And this is the beauty of it too. Conceptually, it wasn't that much of a leap. It's like, oh, Kickstarter for Bitcoin. <laughs> great. I mean, you know, I, I'm sure there was more to getting it to actually work than just that. Sure. But basically, that's the secret of genius is simplicity. And then after the fact, it's obvious. Right. In fact, that's Bitcoin itself, if you think about it. The Byzantine general's problem is insoluble, and we've proven this, and we have articles dating back 25 years. Uh, how about we share a copy of all the transactions that have ever taken place, ever, and then we can see if everybody's records agree. Yeah. It's so obvious. <laughs> yeah. It's like slap on the forehead obvious. <laughs> and yet, it took these guys, or this guy, or and that's a gender-neutral term, by the way, <laughs> right. uh, to figure that one out. Mike Hearn comes out with Lighthouse, and it's like, Wow. I mean, there are so many organizations now that are not necessarily needed because of this tool that he's created, because we can just sort of spontaneously get together as a community and work together to, to fund projects. And I'm going to be very interested to see where this goes and, and what people use it for. Unfortunately, there's going to be some scandal, too, but that's just the way of the world. That is the way of the world. And, you know, what I love about conferences is uh, the hackathons that they have at conference, a lot of conferences now. You know, you can go to a conference and this speaker talks about this and that. And there's a lot of talking and a lot of it's kind of rehashing 
of what we've heard before. A lot of it's kind of encouraging people to do this and do that. But the hackathons that they have there, um, you know, Texas Bitcoin Conference, I think last year had a hackathon where they offered a million dollars. I think they might be doing it again this year. I think they had five uh, winner, four or five winners that came up with actual projects that could actually be implemented and that are now being implemented just like Lighthouse, you know, practical things mm-hmm. that... Of course, you know, and now someone like me, unfortunately, I could come up with the greatest idea in the world, but I wouldn't be able to do anything with it unless I was smart enough to say, hey, wait, why don't I get the tech guys together, you know, that can do this, and then I can try to fund it in some way. In other words, you know, you can take a great idea, but you've got to have Mm -hmm. the tech guys there to help you make it a reality. Well, if you are interested in doing that, let me know, because I got a guy. Oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Some of the guys down here, two young men, Douglas Carrillo. And Andrew Carey organized a uh, Bitcoin hackathon just before the Miami Bitcoin conference. It was the the weekend before. Mm -hmm. And they pulled this thing together in record time. I think it was about a month. And they managed to raise almost $20,000 in prizes. And considering that this happened like right at the last minute, that was nothing short of miraculous. Uh, They had three winners who had very interesting projects. And then the one guy who had just missed third prize. So if there had been a fourth prize winner, this would have been this uh, gentleman, mm-hmm. Matthew Edmondson. And he um, demoed the software that they developed at the hackathon at our most recent Dolphin Tank. And it's something that might be useful at the university where I'm teaching. And I also know somebody else who has an educational project called New World University. Uh, His name is Steve Forrester. And I'm hoping to pitch this idea to him as well. Whether he'll go for it, I don't know, but we'll find out. But the point is that, as you say, at these hackathons, people have, you know, 24 hours to come up with something. And some of these things are really cool. And that I find intriguing. Some of the names you mentioned, are those students of yours? No, actually, these are people from the local community. Okay. They, uh, these are entrepreneurs in this area, and they are running around and doing stuff. Miami is an odd little island, and if you're not from here, it's easy not to understand the place, but it has its own ethos, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an organization called the Kaufman Foundation. Hmm. They conducted a nationwide survey in the United States, I think it was 2012, and concluded that the people in South Florida, so this is Fort Lauderdale and Miami, uh, Fort Lauderdale and Miami are about 20 miles apart. South Florida has the highest concentration of the entrepreneurial personality type of any metropolitan area in the United States. That's including New York, Silicon Valley, and all those places. Wow. Now, sometimes the entrepreneurship manifests itself in the form of somebody stealing fruit off my tree and then selling it back to me at the first intersection (laughs) past my house. But that's just Miami for you. People around here running around, they're wheeling and dealing. It is a small and medium enterprise kind of an economy. It's intensely frustrating for Silicon Valley type investors down here because we don't have a tendency to do things big the way that they like to do in Silicon Valley. In Silicon Valley, if it doesn't scale, it sucks. Whereas here, instead of having one company like Amazon that has 10 million customers, we're much more likely to have 10,000 companies with 1,000 regular customers each. It's the same 10 million customers, but instead of having one winner-take-all 10-bagger, what we have instead is 10,000 little kings and queens who are master of their own universe and they go to bed every night 
CEO or whatever, and they're never going to be the next Amazon. They're never going to be the next eBay, but they're also not employees. Right. They, you know, they own their own shops, and that's just the way we do things here. I think that's a better model for the future overall, personally. Well, I'm from Miami. I was born in Miami. I live in the Miami area. So it's a little bit self-serving, but I agree. Oh, I love it, man. So Dr. Evans, it's been great talking with you today. And could you speak for a moment to my listeners and also to your students and uh, future students out there, uh, give some advice about moving forward with Bitcoin? Uh, Yes. In 2013, this was March 18th of 2013, FinCEN told us what we needed to do if we wanted to buy and sell Bitcoin with the public. They didn't tell us, kill it with fire. The Internal Revenue Service in the United States came out March 25th of 2014, almost exactly a a year later, and told us how to book transactions in Bitcoin for tax purposes. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go to the IRS website, they will not tell you whether or not you can deduct your ammunition costs if you have a murder-for-hire business because that's (laughs) illegal. Right. (laughs) But they told us how to book our Bitcoin transactions if you're accepting Bitcoin in exchange for coffee and T-shirts. Right. That was good news. Yeah. The... CFTC, the Commodities Future Trading Commission, has already approved two Bitcoin swap products. And the Securities Exchange Commission is already working on an application for an exchange-traded fund. So we have government agencies are already making their peace with this stuff. Now we have Microsoft accepting Bitcoin. Overstock is accepting Bitcoin. Tiger Direct down here in Miami is accepting Bitcoin. Now we've got a former chairman of the SEC, hiring out as a consultant to Bitcoin startups. We have a former CEO of Citigroup investing in Coinbase, a mm-hmm. Bitcoin company. Yep. We've got the New York Stock Exchange investing in Bitcoin. So the first question is, is this stuff legal and is it okay? Yes, it's legal and it's okay. And all the cool kids are doing it. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. Is it legal? Is it okay? Number two, what am I going to do with the stuff? We have smartphones around the world, and with that, that means that people can have Bitcoin wallets on their phones around the world. And there are five to five and a half billion potential customers out there just waiting to hear from you. If you want to coordinate with them, you can go to our Reddit group, that's reddit.com, and uh, our subreddit is CEFNOW, that's C-E-F-N-O-W, and we're only just now getting started with that. We've been coordinating most of our stuff on Facebook, but there are people around the world who are all over this stuff, in India, in Africa, Latin America, Asia, and there is money to be made basically moving stuff around and also hiring people for various services. I've heard that in Kenya, apparently there's a community of um, accountants who are relatively inexpensive who are willing to work for Bitcoin, Hmm. and it goes on and on and on. It's also really good for charitable stuff. If you want to help somebody in some other part of the world, now you have Lighthouse, let's go and organize some charitable drives. As I tell my students, there are no jobs out there because everything's being done by robots now, but there's infinite possibilities. And that's the world that we're in. And the only medium of exchange at the moment that works at all in many parts of the world is Bitcoin. And that's a guy with a PhD in finance telling you this. 
Hey, I love it. That was great. And, you know, I think when we talk about what money there is to be made, I think moving forward, we're not talking about billions. I think personally, we're talking about trillions. We've been listening to Dr. Charles Evans, professor of finance and economics at Barry University in Miami Shores, Florida. Charles, thank you so much for being on the show and for enlightening me. I certainly learned a lot and I know my listeners did. And I would love to have you back on the show at some point. I would be delighted. Thank you very much for having me. Enjoy that Florida weather down there, man. I will. It's absolutely delightful. If you're up in one of the big square states where they have that white stuff that's like sand, um, I forget what you call snow. Snow. If you have, yeah, if you have snow, you really ought to be here. It's gorgeous. So, Charles, can you please tell our listeners the best way that they can get in touch with you and to find out more about your projects? Yes. You can go to our new website, which is cefnow.org. So that's C-E-F-N-O-W.org. Okay. We're still working on that at the moment that I'm speaking. Hopefully, by the time you see it, it will be looking a little bit better. Our original website was at ConsciousEntrepreneurship.org, and nobody could spell that, so <laughs> we had to come up with a new domain name. Most of our good stuff is at ConsciousEntrepreneurship.org, but CEFnow.org is, um, is our new website. Okay, great. We're also on Facebook, if you look for Conscious Entrepreneurship Foundation. And we also have our new Reddit group, which is uh, slash R and then CEF now. Okay, great. And listeners, all of that will be in the show notes that you can access by way of Let's Talk Bitcoin or SoundCloud. Listeners, you've been listening to Dr. Charles Evans, professor of finance and economics at Barry University in Miami Shores, Florida. Dr. Evans, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. We'll talk to you later. Okay, sounds good. Bye. Now climb aboard, y'all. This train is bound for glory. And there's plenty of room for all. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a name I love to say. And we don't know much about him, but he came to save the day. When he wrote about the way things are and the way things are to be, he gave us all a protocol this world had never seen. Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain. Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. told about the death of old Mount Gox, about traders trading altar coins and miners mining blocks. But them good old boys back in Illinois and on down through Tennessee, see they don't care to be a millionaire, they're just wanting to be free. Oh Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain, oh Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain, till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. A promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name 
Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows you. Give me some exposure. Everybody knows your name. Sing it. Oh, Lord, pass me some more. Oh, Lord, before I have to go. Oh, Lord, pass me some more. like to thank my guest on today's show, Dr. Charles Evans, Professor of Finance and Economics at Barry University in beautiful Miami Shores, Florida. To get in touch with Dr. Evans, just check out the show notes here at letstalkbitcoin.com, or you can check out the show notes on SoundCloud, or you can go to my website, bitcoinsandgravy.com. And now I'd like to take just a minute to talk to my listeners out there who may have startups and who are working to get their projects, platforms, or products off the ground. If you have a business that needs more exposure, and if you want to increase your customer base and increase your profits, here's something to think about for your business. This podcast you're listening to right now, Bitcoins and Gravy, has over 10,000 weekly listeners and is heard each week in over 100 countries around the world. We all know that the Bitcoin sphere is expanding exponentially, and Bitcoins and Gravy is expanding in pace with this exciting technology. So as our listener base grows, so does the potential for your business to reach more and more customers here in North America and around the globe. What I'm saying is advertise here. With over 10,000 weekly listeners, Bitcoins and Gravy is now a staple for Bitcoin enthusiasts of all levels. Whenever you advertise with Bitcoins and Gravy, your message is archived and therefore will be heard again and again as new listeners come online and search through past shows. In other words, your 30-second or 60-second spot will live in perpetuity on SoundCloud, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, YouTube, and of course, on my website, bitcoinsandgravy.com. So please let me know how I can help you make your advertising dream a reality. I'm ready to tell my listeners about you, your platform, project, or product. For more details about how to advertise with Bitcoins and Gravy and for pricing, please send me an email to howdy, that's H-O-W-D-Y, howdy at bitcoinsandgravy.com. If you've enjoyed the show today, please take a minute to leave a comment on Let's Talk Bitcoin in the comments section right there below the show notes. You can also leave a message on SoundCloud or do the old-fashioned thing and send me an email. And of course, Bitcoin and Litecoin tips are always appreciated by the hardworking writers and podcasters in the Bitcoin world. Many of us work as volunteers and sure could use those tips. You can send me $5 or $0.05 cents and I will be just as happy knowing that this podcast put a smile on your face or made your day a little bit better. 
Signing off now from East Nashville, Tennessee, I'm your host, John Barrett, with my trusty companion, Maxwell, by my side. Say goodbye, Maxwell. Y'all be good to each other out there now, and remember, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. <laughs>